take two. <laughs> Welcome back to Parkside Greens Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Steve here, starting out with an apology. Uh, last week, I just got a little ahead of myself and I included some teaching from Luke 18, verses 35 to 43, where Jesus healed the blind beggar. And it made for a message that ran a couple minutes over. I'm going to try to make it up to you this week, shooting for a message under 20 minutes. And uh, the silver lining of my mistake last week is we can slow down a little bit this week and just soak in the lessons from this week's two stories, uh, which again are found only in the Gospel of Luke. As a reminder of our context, uh, Jesus is just about to complete his long journey to Jerusalem that started way back in Luke 9:51, And he's now in the city of Jericho. He's less than 20 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, and there he's going to meet a man named Zacchaeus and continue his mission, Jesus' mission, to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus will teach us who are saved how to steward God's resources by telling the parable of the minas. So our passage this week, Luke 19, verses 1 to 27, is all about salvation and stewardship. Salvation and stewardship, and we'll look at it under two headings, saving the lost in verses 1 to 10, and then stewarding God's resources in verses 11 to 27. So we begin with Jesus saving the lost in verses 1 to 10. Now Jesus has just healed a blind beggar on the roadside going into Jericho, and now as Jesus enters into and is passing through Jericho, he encounters a man named Zacchaeus. The first four verses tell us five things about Zacchaeus. Number one, he was the chief tax collector. And you see, Jericho was a, a major crossroads for collecting taxes on goods that were traveling west from Perea or east from Judea and Samaria. And that explains, number two, how, G how Zacchaeus was rich. I mean, he was in charge of it all. He was at the top of the pyramid as the chief tax collector. Number three, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, we don't know exactly what attracted Zacchaeus to Jesus or, or what piqued his interest, but we know he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Fourthly, Zacchaeus was a short guy in a big crowd. I mean, no matter how much he bobbed his head or stretched on his tiptoes, he just couldn't get a clear line of sight to where Jesus was passing by. Fifthly, Zacchaeus was resourceful and he was unashamed. He ran ahead on Jesus' route and he climbed up in a sycamore tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. Uh, we might picture Danny DeVito in a really nice tunic robe scrambling up into a tree. And lo and behold, when Jesus came to the place, instead of looking straight forward, his face set to Jerusalem, he looked up into the tree, <laughs> and instead of, where Zacchaeus was perched there, and instead of laughing and saying, what are you doing up there? Jesus called him by name, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And now we're starting to wonder, aren't we, if Zacchaeus came to see Jesus or if Jesus came to see Zacchaeus. 
It wasn't a question, you notice. Uh, Would you possibly have room to accommodate me? It was a bold statement by Jesus. Hurry up out of that tree, for I must stay at your house today. And sure enough, Zacchaeus hurried down out of the tree, and he received Jesus joyfully. Zacchaeus was no grumbling skeptic about Jesus. He was glad, he was joyful to receive Jesus into his home. The only grumbling came from others in Jericho who did not like Jesus going to be the guest of a man who they knew was a sinner. Everyone seemed to have known Zacchaeus's reputation. He, he was a bit like the, the Bernie Madoff of his day, a guy who got rich at other people's expense. He was working for the oppressive Roman government, and, and he was also feathering his nest along the way. He was probably viewed as part traitor and part thief. It wasn't a good combination. And those who saw Jesus heading off to Zacchaeus' house to be his guest didn't like it one bit. They, they grumbled, they complained about it. But of course, Jesus knew best. <laughs> Apparently, once they were in his home, Zacchaeus stood, maybe all five feet of him, he stood, and he said to the Lord, he just repented right on the spot, Behold, Lord, uh, I give half my goods to the poor. Now, Zacchaeus's goods would have included not just his salary, but his possessions as well. It's like him saying, Half my net worth, Lord, I give to the poor. Unlike the rich ruler we saw in the previous chapter, Zacchaeus was not going to let his money keep him from following Jesus. And Zacchaeus added, if I've defrauded anyone, I'll restore it fourfold. He appears to be following the guideline of Exodus 22 verse 1, to repay anything that was stolen or defrauded fourfold. Zacchaeus's actions spoke loud and clear. He was doing what John the Baptist had called for way back in Luke 3, 8. He was bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. So Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this home, for he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was not saved by giving his money away. But his generosity and his restitution were evidence that he had been saved. We see in Luke 18, verses 26 and 27, what Jesus said earlier, now it's taking place in action. What, what was impossible with people is possible with God. A rich man can be saved if he repents of his sin and, and trusts in Jesus. Jesus was fulfilling his mission. That very thing he came for, to seek and to save the lost. Just like with the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son earlier, Jesus is all about seeking and saving the lost. And once a person is saved, they're rescued by Jesus, they've, they've put their faith in him, then they're called to steward God's resources, to steward God's resources, as we see in Jesus' parable of the minas. Now, we might ask, why this parable and why at this time? Verse 11 gives us the answer. Number one, 
because Jesus was near to Jerusalem, and number two, because the people supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Uh, the crowds, think about it, they'd already lined the streets of Jericho so deeply that Zacchaeus couldn't get a glimpse of Jesus. And we're going to see next week that as Jesus rode a colt into Jerusalem, people are going to spread their cloaks on the road. They're going to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Messianic expectations were about to reach a fever pitch, and many supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Therefore, see that? Therefore, Jesus told a parable to correct people's mistaken expectations of a political Messiah who would cause the kingdom of God to appear immediately. No, no, no. Jesus says it's going to be like this. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, that could mean that the nobleman would receive a kingdom in a faraway country, but it seems much more likely, from what follows, that the nobleman would go to the faraway country to receive authority to rule over the place he was currently living in, so that he would return from that faraway country with authority to rule in his homeland. That's sort of like how uh, in the U.S. a district judge is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate in Washington, D.C., but then they serve as a judge in their home district, like Northern Ohio. In fact, it had recently happened just that way. In 40 B.C., Herod the Great traveled all the way to Rome to receive confirmation of his rule in Judea. But because the nobleman's trip to that far country was going to take a while, he called ten of his servants and gave them each a mina, which is worth about three months' wages of, of a laborer, maybe something in the neighborhood of eight to ten thousand dollars today. And the servants were each to engage in business until the nobleman returned. And then we have our first note of trouble on the horizon in verse 14, which tells us that the nobleman's citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Not everyone liked this future king. In fact, some actively opposed him. They went to that faraway country sort of to lobby against his appointment. And that would have been familiar to Jews in Jerusalem at this time, who had at times themselves sent delegations on long trips to Rome to protest their local rulers. And that's in fact exactly what happened with Herod's son Archelaus in 4 BC. But the protests in the faraway country did not work because in fact the nobleman did receive the kingdom. And then, Having received the kingdom, he called his ten servants to find out what they had gained by doing their business while he was away. The first servant had a glowing report. He said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And I, I don't know, no matter how long that trip took, a ten times return on investment is tremendous. I mean, it is sweet so we can understand why the nobleman said, well, 
done, good servant. Well done. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And remember, the nobleman had just received the kingdom, and it seems he's sort of setting up his administration, and in this case, delegating to that first servant authority over ten cities under his jurisdiction. The second servant had a good report. Uh, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And the nobleman didn't exclaim gushingly, well done, good servant, in this case, but he did tell the second servant, yeah, you're going to be over five cities. And then a third servant came saying, uh, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Notice he had not obeyed what the nobleman said. He had not followed those instructions to engage in business while he was away. He's got the nice shiny mina to give him back, but it's totally unused. And the reason the servant gave was that he was afraid of the nobleman because he was a severe man taking what he did not deposit and reaping where he did not sow. But the nobleman turns that excuse back on this man who he calls a wicked servant. He's not neutral, a wicked servant, condemning him with his own words. The, the word translated uh, as severe means exacting or, or strict in requirements, not, not selfish or unfair. So if the servant believed, rightly or wrongly, uh, that the nobleman had high expectations of others, was severe in that sense, shouldn't that have motivated him to at least put the master's money in the bank so that when he returned, he could receive it back with interest? I mean, it doesn't take a lot of effort to open up a high-yield money market account, and at least then the servant would have been engaging in business as he had been instructed even if it was in a minimal sort of way. It, it seems like the third servant here is just making up an excuse for his disobedience. So the nobleman ordered that wicked servant to have the one mina taken from him and given to the first servant who had the ten minas. That doesn't seem fair, right? We may have an objection and the onlookers objected. They said, hey, that first guy, he's already got ten minas. Uh, why should the rich get richer, seems to be their thought. But the nobleman explains that to the one who has more will be given. Think about it. The best place for that nobleman's money to be was in the hands of the first servant, who showed such unusual wisdom and faithfulness with what was entrusted to him. After all, I mean, by his track record, he could turn that one handkerchief mina maybe into ten more. <laughs> but the nobleman continues soberly, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Alistair Begg summarizes this parable helpfully as teaching, use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. It sounds like what Jesus said earlier in Luke 16:12. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Then lastly, the nobleman calls his enemies, who did not want him to reign over them, ordering that they be brought and slaughtered before him. Awful consequences. 
There's a lot to consider here. Let's, let's try to sort it out and, and apply it to our lives, kind of point by point. The main point of the parable seems clear enough, doesn't it? It goes back to verse 11. Because Jesus was near to Jerusalem and because people supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, he told them a parable that showed uh, God's kingdom would not come in its fullness until Jesus went away and later returned after what seemed like a long delay. It wasn't going to happen immediately. And during the time between Christ going away and Christ returning, he expects his followers to steward God's resources wisely, faithfully. Do something positive while you wait for your master to return so that he can commend you for your faithfulness. Be faithful with whatever has been entrusted to you. When, when the Lord returns, it seems there will be variable degrees of reward based on people's variable faithfulness. Now, this is not to earn our way into heaven, which comes only as a gift of God's grace. But once we are saved by faith in Jesus, we're called to steward the gifts that he has given us, including the treasure of the gospel that he has put in these jars of clay. Be like the first or the second servant, not like the third servant who failed to do anything with what was entrusted to him. And to those who do not want Jesus to reign over them, as it says in verse 14, those who hated him, to his enemies who do not want him to reign over them, it's repeated for emphasis in verse 27, they will face deadly judgment and eternal ruin when Jesus does, in fact, return as he will as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we back up and look at the big picture, there are many possible ways that God's word from Luke 19, 1-27 could apply to our lives. Number one, like Zacchaeus, let nothing keep us from Jesus and receive Jesus gladly, joyfully. Let nothing keep us from Jesus. Secondly, praise Jesus that he came to seek and to save the lost, people like you and me. Praise Jesus that he came to seek and to save the lost, people like us. Thirdly, put God's resources to work, knowing that we will give an account of our stewardship when Jesus returns. Put God's resources to work. Fourthly, invite unbelieving friends and family to come under Jesus' reign before he returns. Invite others to come under Jesus' reign before he returns. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for loving us so much that you sent your son Jesus to earth to seek and to save the lost. And like Zacchaeus, we, we don't want to allow any obstacles to keep us from Jesus. We want to receive Jesus in our lives joyfully. And once we've been saved by Jesus, we ask you to give us the wisdom and the courage needed to steward your resources well. We thank you for the privilege of inviting others to come under the good and glorious reign of Jesus who is returning someday. 
It's in the name of Jesus, the King of kings, that we pray. Amen.